Hey everybody, uh, I'm gonna take the cold open for just a second to share some news with you all because it's probably only a matter of time before someone kind of puts some things together. Um, I have resigned from my job at the Chicago Board Game Cafe, which was a very difficult decision, but if you've seen Twitter and have seen the stuff going around about Cards Against Humanity and Max Temkin in particular, it's, it's all horrifying and I just don't... Uh, I don't feel good about it and I don't want to be a part of it. So, you know, the thing that I've been talking about doing since like the very beginning of the show, I was excited about, well, I've got to find a new thing now. Uh, I, I guess I'm being kind of glib about this, but I do want to say that like, I, you know, feel horrible for the victims of, of Max's terror. And I didn't know any of this was going on. Like, obviously, you know, someone shitty to you and you don't see that it's a pattern and then it's all laid out before you, and it's like, oh, yeah, fuck, I guess it was. Um, so I stand with them. I stand with the Cards Against Humanity employees who are unionizing. I think that's so fucking cool. Uh, I stand with everyone who's left at the Chicago Board Game Cafe. It's no one's theirs fault that Max is an asshole. It just... Uh, I only had my job because Max thought I was his friend. And given what has come out about the clubhouse culture of Cards Against Humanity, I could not keep it. So... Anyway, I also couldn't do this podcast with a straight face if I did keep it. So, you know, I care about you guys and about this show. Right, Lauren? Yeah, I'm really proud of you, Eric. And uh goes without saying that we're not going to be recording at the Cards Against Humanity studios anymore. Um, I've sort of been watching from the sidelines, seeing everyone from various board game companies to C2E2 sort of pulling back from their relationships with Cards Against Humanity. And I think that's both the right thing to do. And I also hope that with this new union and some of the changes that the organization has announced for the people who are still there, that a lot of the racism and systemic issues that are coming to light will be ironed out because there are good people there doing good work and um i think i think i'm not gonna say i think it gets better i just really hope it does but specifically i hope it gets better for you i know this has been a hard couple of weeks and watching you continue to do this show with me through a difficult time is something i really appreciate but how about we talk about shira yeah, speaking of Shira, let's talk about what's really important, and it's that my looky action figure is still at Cards Against Humanity. Can oh. you go get it for me? <laughs> uh, actually, no, because the office is still closed, and my key is going to be cut off by the time they reopen it. So oh, maybe no. it's time to petition Matt Young to, you know, kind of bridge the divide between our podcasts. I'm never going to see my son again. <laughs> Welcome back to She-Ra Progressive of Power. My name is Lauren. My name is Eric. And we're going to bring you, pretty soon, part two of our two-part interview with Kiki Manrique and Jen Bennett, because today's episode is Shot in the Dark, and Jen was the director of this one. Uh, this is a pretty cool episode. We get to meet uh, Milog. And we get to see a lot of the relationship dynamic evolving between the Best friend Squad and their new addition, who is Katra. How did you feel about this episode, Eric? I felt like this was a really good episode. It was like almost in some ways a bottle episode because it focused on, you know, kind of the Best friend Squad alone, even though they were in like a new locale. It, it felt like 
this was an episode that was kind of putting their emotional dynamics to the test. And I, I really liked seeing Catra integrate with the BFS. Yeah, so on my first watch through, I found myself very critical, obviously, of whether or not people were going to forgive Katra, how she was going to make amends, and I was watching it a lot more closely this time, and I'm I'm actually a fan. There's a lot of heart in this, and uh, I'm starting to buy the redemption arc, but we'll get there in a second. I wanted, to, I wanted to point out before we got into the episode, because we haven't yet, the title sequence, the, the theme song sequence. Have you been keeping an eye on that, Eric? I honestly usually skip it, because I still don't like the song. <laughs> Right. So that's such a weird thing about Netflix. Uh, normally, it's a good thing. They give you the, the skip intro button. And so you don't have to watch a theme song over and over like when I'm binging Grace and Frankie or whatever, because that theme song never changes. But wait, Lauren, mm-hmm. Grayskull and Frankie. Is that a thing? Grayskull and yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of a Frankie. <laughs> what could we do with Frankie? Uh, Bad I'll improv. C- yeah, I'll come back to that. But anyway, please proceed. We'll, we'll find it. We'll find yeah. it by the end of the episode. Anyway, in the title sequence, the characters have changed several times over the past several episodes. So in the moment when we see Horde Prime, now we have Spinnerella, Micah, and Mermista standing below him with the Horde. And then meanwhile, the princesses and the rebellion at the end are missing the chipped characters. We have Seahawk looking very determined instead of happy-go-lucky. And Perfuma is super bummed. And it just really reflects the changing dynamic of the show. You kind of get an update about who's on which side before the story even starts. It's a really cool... I don't even want to call it an Easter egg. It's not like it's hidden, but it becomes hidden if you skip it. That's a neat trick. Uh, And it... Especially because the show, to my... I mean, I guess I've skipped a lot of them, but I don't think it's played with the main credits too, too much before this season. No, I really think it was just this one. Speaking of the theme song, I'm just trying to dig through our mailbag a little bit, and we got a letter from Bates saying, uh, a true modern power ballad. And this person wrote to us about Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts. Have you watched that show? No, but I'm pretty sure that's another Grey Golden show. It is. It's another DreamWorks one. It's animated, and Karen Fukuhara is also in it. Apparently, there is a song called Heroes on Fire. Might be the theme song. I'm not sure. I haven't seen it. But uh, Bates shared a YouTube video of Heroes on Fire and argues that it is a true modern power ballad and that you would like it a lot more for the genre than you liked uh, the She-Ra song. Wait, okay, I'm going to go look it up now. I'll edit out the silence. I want to give Bates an answer. I want Bates to know if, uh, if they have a handle on my taste. Outside so cold Heroes I'm a child I knew About a world so true I needed a hero If I only knew that the hero was me The hero was me 
Okay, I'm ready to rule on this. Yeah, 100%. That's that's a power ballad. Yes. <laughs> Bates, I knew you nailed it. That is what a damn power ballad sounds like. It is I also did some quick googling. It was apparently from the season 2 trailer. So, there's definitely some like modern trappings. It's you know, I think if this were the 80s, the the synths would be pulled back a little, but absolutely this is a power ballad uh yeah wonderful wonderful good job thank you i uh, i'd like to think dreamworks did that for you you personally eric <laughs> yeah i think that's the theme of of this episode is like things happen to and for me only right there's no one else in <laughs> yeah. the world yeah yeah in the real world and animation world yeah because you know you're a white guy it's that's what life is right anyway yeah that's a fucking rock and power ballad great job <laughs> I'm glad to hear you smiling and laughing. This is going way better now. Thank you, Bates. All right. So uh, why don't we talk about Shot in the Dark? Eric, do you have a summary? Yeah. Uh, so Shot in the Dark, which uh, is another wonderful episode named after a 1980s song in my brain. That's why the opening song of this episode was not by a woman, but was by Mr. Ozzy Osbourne. Shot in the Dark. Uh, okay. So Best Friend Squad is making their way back from uh, freeing, uh, escaping Horde Prime's clutches, but they, are they have heard that there's a blockade around Etheria and don't know how they will be able to get in. So the Best Friend Squad is trying to kind of deduce whether Horde Prime might have a weakness before they return, and good old Wrong Hordak kind of lets loose this, this word Critus. Well, uh, Entrapta puts it into her internet thingy, and finds out that Critus is a nearby planet. Uh, so, despite uh, Wrong Hordak's protestations, they all go there. They found out that Critus is a world that's been kind of ravaged by Horde Prime, but there does still seem to be someone alive on it, some some life form. So they go to explore. It's kind of like a creepy crawly planet. Like they keep thinking doors are gonna be where there's no doors, and then there's no doors where there should be doors, and hallways elongate, and there's all sorts of booby traps, and they hear things, and it's really creepy. Well, it turns out that pretty much every distortion that they encounter is because of this life form that has kind of clung to them. Our old friend from uh, the original She-Ra, the Milog, except in this case, Milog is not a mud monster golem made by Shadow Weaver, but a magical shape-shifting ethereal kitty cat thing that uh b is the last survivor of a, a magical race and they were able to drive horde prime away uh in the before time and catra kind of forms a bond with Melog, and they realize that Melog, with her distortion power can cloak their ship and get them past the blockade back to etheria so that is exactly what they do meanwhile in the b story um the remaining rebellion princesses are kind of trying to get along. Shadow Weaver and uh, Castaspella show up and go off on their own. Shadow Weaver promises to Castaspella that she has a way to save the planet because she has learned that the planet is alive and has a, a bead, a beat rather, on uh, on all this magical power. That and she asks Castaspella to please kind of keep her in check so she can. Uh, she can channel the power and help save Etheria for everybody. And that's the episode. Awesome. So one of the things I really like about this episode is how everyone in the Best Friend Squad sort of gets called out on their own, like, hypocrisy. So at the beginning of the episode, 
Catra is being the rational one and the pessimistic one. Like, I can't believe you're just going to barge in there with no plan. This is ridiculous. This is reckless. And then later on, she's the one recklessly punching through walls and justifying it. Oh, that's interesting uh, that you take that as reckless. I took that as her kind of like coming a- along to their style of like friendship. I, I think it's both. And, you know, similarly, she says at the beginning that she defeated the rebellion a bunch of times. And then five minutes later in the episode says, I can't believe we were losing to you guys. Everyone is just sort of calling themselves and each other on their bullshit. And I think it goes a long way to kind of, to your point, help build those friendships and bring everyone closer to a new, a new like median. Yeah. Cause I think you're right, but it's also like a cute flirty episode. Like Bo and Catra have a lot of great moments. Bo uh, compliments Catra's spacesuit, which is very like Voltron-y as well as her sneeze. She has this really cute sneezing scene uh, that I think is really like Catra's first kind of relaxed moment with the best friend squad. Uh, it's it's really, really cute. It is. It's a cute and funny episode. I think some more things I'd add to that list are Catra's fluffy tail and how it's kind of standing on end and she's constantly, like, trying to shut her tail up. It's really adorable. And Bo's magnifying glass arrow. It really brings... almost almost an absurd level of like whimsy to i think what would otherwise be a pretty a pretty scary episode yeah and i think you're keying into like this episode is about calling people on their shit to me like the key moment is uh so melog kind of responds to like emotional cues in the person it's bonding with and uh there's a moment where Catra's kind of chill and Maylog goes along with it and then Catra starts to freak out and Maylog freaks out and then Catra says, I'm sorry I got angry at something I'm working on, to which Adora replies, oh, you are? And, I mean, the fact that Catra is, like, even acknowledging that she has a problem with anger, to me, is a huge step. Yeah, I found that to be a very, like, post-therapy sort of line, like apologizing for your anger or and declaring that it's it's a it's a working point for you that's definitely the kind of thing i've done after i've talked to a therapist about developing new habits i don't think there's therapy in this world i think we've talked about it before but she's getting it from somewhere if only inside of herself yeah that was that was really sweet i and i can't say enough good things about maylog i love maylog I think it's such a strange reference, which we'll kind of talk about in the interview. Like, it was supposed to be Claudine, and then it ended up being this, like, mud monster thing. Which, I think we should point out that Maylog is uh, backwards golem, which is like a, a kind of a archetype from Jewish mythology. But th- I don't think that this version of Maylog is keying into that at all. I think it's just kind of referencing a shape-shifting creature from the original Princess of Power. Yeah, I think they were literally just pulling it as a nostalgia piece, whereas in the 80s cartoon, there was a lot more of that, like, mud symbolism, and they were trying a lot harder to lean into that. I really um, thought, I I guess what I'm trying to say is a bingo square of mine is not getting checked off. I really was leaning into the idea of Catra getting a superpower, because we saw Milog in the trailer, and I think Milog's design in some cases kind of looks like Catra. The color of Milog's body is kind of adjacent to the color of Catra's. 
hair and some of her outfit components and the angle on Milog's face sort of matches some of the angles on Katra's outfit. They really look like a pair. And so because they did, I assumed that Katra was going to transform into this. She super doesn't, and I think that pretty much puts that potential into the grave. It seems, I don't think. Yes. I don't think. I was just gonna say, I don't think Katra's relationship with Mila gets to be categorized as anything super. It, it's just kind. It seems likely, although perhaps Katra's superpower is empathy, because there also is the question of why is it that Milog bonds with Katra, and not any of the other characters besides Primacy. Like, yes, technically Milog and Katra like kind of make the connection first, but. There's probably more to it than that. Yeah, I think it would be nice if there were more to it than that. I certainly interpreted it as just a very basic, like, she was the first one there and she showed patience. Uh, You know, they say, like, a duck imprints on the first thing it sees when it's born. I don't know if that's an old wives' tale, but they do sort of follow their mamas around. And I just like to imagine that that's what this is. It's very cute. So you don't want to think that there's, like, that Melog sees something redemptive in Catra, that Catra could really use a a friend right now, a non-judgmental magical friend? (laughs) You know I don't want, you know I don't want to justify the Catra redemption arc at all. That's just me. Uh... You're going to get so much hate mail now that my conscience is clean man you're gonna be canceled (laughs) i already did so actually this is this is a pretty good time to bring up one of the fan letters that i saved for this episode Uh, we had a writer named danielle reach out to us and danielle and i want first i'm just gonna give the disclaimer that this i think is a misrepresentation of what we said on this show before but bear with me danielle wants to know why you and I, both of us, Eric, think that Shadow Weaver deserves redemption, but Catra and Entrapta do not. Yeah, I I don't think that is what I've been saying or what you've been saying. I think we just both love Shadow Weaver, and so we probably talk about her in like more reverent tones. I, yes. I think she is... So, okay, if we were ranking as far as what kind of redemption should they get... I would say, like, Entrapta is, like, I will buy Entrapta Redemption with the right story. Like, I think she can earn it. And I just don't know if, like, the scripting of it in this season totally worked for me. I would put Shadow Weaver quite a bit away from that as far as, like, it would take a lot to redeem Shadow Weaver. And then Catra's even one step beyond that for me. Of Like, she tried to unwrite the world. <laughs> That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So... I'm I, my feelings are pretty similar to yours. I don't think I ever said Entrapta didn't deserve it. I don't think I ever said Katra didn't deserve it. I would love for the writers of Shira and the Princesses of Power to just write these beautiful, nuanced, complex, convincing redemption arcs for everybody, and I would be along for the ride. I love that as much as the next person. They, I think Entrapta would probably be the easiest for me to believe. I think. They do a nice job saying Entrapta loves science. In this episode, even, she says Data doesn't lie. I think that plays into her motivations a lot. And they also show her as not neurotypical. And so I'm I'm the quickest to buy into Entrapta. Catra, I think I just push back against Catra so much because this show and this episode want us to like her and bring her onto the squad so badly. 
And I just kind of resent when a show clearly wants me to think a certain way. Like, I don't, I don't like her that much. I'm sorry. I know you want me to. Oh my gosh. And yeah, she, she tried to destroy the world. Um, she tried to kill our heroes very clearly a bunch of times. And I think it would just take a lot more, but it doesn't make me think she doesn't deserve it. I think she deserves it. I would just like to see it play out longer. Shadow Weaver, though, and I know this is a long rant. I don't think Shadow Weaver deserves redemption, and I wasn't looking for a Shadow Weaver redemption. My ideal Shadow Weaver plot is like what happened to Jamie Lannister at the end of the Game of Thrones TV series, in which he tried his damnedest to be a better man and then just went back to his old ways and failed. People hated that about Jamie. But I was really into it. I was like, some people just can't escape their habits, you know? Yeah. And I really wanted Shadow Weaver to just snap and make one last power play and fight with Micah for control of Bright Moon and just die trying to trying to be Empress of the Universe. Would have been awesome, would have loved it. We'll talk about what actually happens to her later, though. I guess if there is sort of a thesis statement that I want to pull out of this, it's that I just want there to be room in the fandom for discussion of every type of outcome or ship or version of events that you personally like. We did get a letter from someone named Erica, and Erica was sharing that she doesn't always feel comfortable talking in the fandom about Katra in a critical way. Um, Katra, Danielle says, never apologizes to Scorpia. Their friendship doesn't get resolved in any way. And from a certain point of view, Katra is responsible for killing Angela. You know, if murdering the Queen of Bright Moon, I have to imagine, is some sort of war crime in this universe that would theoretically get answered for at some point. Erica just feels like she can't always say that without getting shouted down. And I think you could think either way about Katra or about any character in this show. You can want anything you want for them. And don't don't yell at each other. Don't write hate mail. I know Eric was joking that we'll get hate mail, but that's that's not a good use of your time. Here's, just al- just allow it. Here's what I would say too about this is like I keep saying that Catra's redemption arc, which again I'm not opposed to, but it requires suspension of disbelief when it comes to like fantasy storytelling tropes. And I don't know if that is true of Entrapta and Shadow Weaver. So maybe that's why we're on different planes, right? Because Entrapta thinks her friends have abandoned her and goes to work for their enemy. Now, that's bad, but I could see that happening in the real world, right? Shadow Weaver is a a bad, abusive mother. Obviously, that's probably the most realistic kind of toxic relationship we have in the show, is the abusive parent. Catra destroys reality and kills... Killing someone's mom, there's grounds in reality for that, but I don't... I think for as many viewers as can relate to having um, abusive parents, unfortunately, and I'll count myself among them, I don't know how many viewers can relate to their friends uh, killing their parents. And I super don't think any of us have ever met anyone who is willing to destroy existence uh, to get back at someone for feeling inferior, right? So I, I think maybe that's part of my blockage, is like the show asks us to make leaps with Catra that it doesn't ask us to make with any other character. 
I agree with that. And I will say season five, and specifically this episode, I think do the most asking of the viewer to just sort of accept what the characters have done and go along with it. Like a harmless example in this episode is when Castispella and Shadow Weaver are standing with Frosta and Perfuma and the gang. And then Shadow Weaver's like, come with me, Casta. I need to show you something. And they just wander off alone in another direction. And nobody goes, where are those two going? We lost them. They just they just sort of allow the two sorceresses to together drift off into the night because they have to. The plot says they have to. And I think there's a lot of quote unquote, the plot says this is happening mm. now going on in this season. That's interesting. I, I guess I, I wasn't bothered by that, but there is like certainly a level of charm that uh, disrupts my critical faculties because like I do think this episode is so charming and cute and fun. And I, I do buy Catcher's Redemption, but then you really do have to think about like, yeah, where has she been? Granted, like, we can't have this discussion without recognizing that she also has been a victim, and especially very recently has been victimized by, you know, the, the baddest dude in the universe. So I I get it, right? I get where this is coming from, and I think she is a really nice addition to the Best Friend Squad as far as, like, her emotional tenor and things like that. Um, but I, I take your point that there maybe is something... Um, not insidious, but something kind of under the surface here that's like shorthand asking us to make emotional leaps for the character that the season doesn't necessarily address. This got heavy. It did. I just, we get so many letters about our opinions about Catra that I feel like we have to keep talking about yeah. it. And it's probably just throwing more fuel to the fire. We're probably just making it worse. So, But I do love Catra, though. Y'all. I love her. And I'm glad that she finds happiness. You know, if if she was a real person, this is what I would want for her. Yeah, if that were my lifelong childhood friend, like she has that relationship with Adora, I think if I were in Adora's shoes, I'd be I'd be hoping for her to come out on the right side too. So everyone does get what they want in this show. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to have a show where everyone gets what they want. Right. So we've talked a lot about a couple things, but to me like I, everything else in this episode, I feel like we're going to cover in the interview. Is there anything else you want to get to before we go to that? I would like to talk a little bit more about Wrong Hordak. Because now that we've interviewed Keston, I hear Keston so much more in Wrong Hordak. When he's screaming about how he is not all-powerful, he lied to us, brothers, we have to rise up. I hear Keston now, and I'm just happy. Agree. I wrong. I, I say this in the interview too, but wrong. Hordak's come to Jesus moment in this episode where he realizes Horde Prime is not that great. So great, so good. What a what a great character. I love him. I do think this is a very strong Entrapta episode. To some of our previous conversations about whether or not Entrapta can be integrated back into the team and whether or not anyone will trust her. I think I think she does an awesome job in this one showing where her loyalties lie. And I wanted to just bring one more fan letter into this episode. Uh, this We're not sharing the person's name. They wrote to us under an alias, the alias being Entrapted in Shira Land. 
<laughs> By the way, if if more of you would like to do those like '90s uh, like missed encounters names instead of your real name, I would be so charmed. Feel free to do that. Uh, Entrapted in Shira Land wrote us a really cool analysis of Entrapta as a feminist figure. Uh, they gave us a lot of reasons for that from. Entrapta's confidence, her lack of jealousy, the fact that she is not neurotypical but is not bullied about that, uh, but most importantly, Entrapta's willingness to take up space. Uh, something as a feminist that I talk about a lot is taking up space in society. You know, I think when you're many many women when they're on a when we're on a train or in a crowd. We're constantly worried that, like, we're taking up too much, literally taking up too much space. And Entrapta, with her big hair, reaching and grabbing and pulling people and moving things, she just has this powerful physical presence that makes her, I think, extremely feminist. I agree with our our listener. The thing is, most of the characters in this show, I would say, are feminist. The letter was like, do you think about that? For Entrapta, and I, I kind of think about it for everyone. I would say even the male characters. I think Seahawk is very feminist as he casts light and power upon the woman that he loves. They're pretty much all feminist. Yeah, I do want to say, though, that is such an incredibly, like, deft. Deft is a good word, right? It means, like, sharp. That That's such a good reading of Entrapta that I never would have thought about. And I am so... Uh, over the moon that you shared that with us, uh, dear writer. Thank you. That's really amazing. And I love the analogy and the, the analysis that went into that. So thank you for sharing. Awesome. So that's, that's I think, all I wanted to cover. How about you? Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's get to the interview, part two of, of Jen Bennett and Kiki Manrique. And then we'll be back next week with... Uh, the gang is all back on Etheria, and shit's going down. So, Kiki, in this episode, we are introduced uh, at the very beginning to the new Catra do. Uh, this, and Catra's kind of integration into the Best Friends squad is going to be a big part of Shot in the Dark. But uh, as a way of kind of transitioning episodes, I, I guess I'd love both of your thoughts on... Like, were you conscious while making these episodes of how laser-focused the fandom would be on every Catra Adora moment? I would say yes. <laughs> sure. Um, sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we definitely, um, I mean, we knew that, it, uh, we, knew that uh, we wanted Catra Adora to be Endgame. And so we, I think it was always the intention of, of like everyone, the writers, us, to kind of make sure that those moments were like, really like really came through and were really clear and were really integral to the story. Um, and then I think there's also a lot of moments where like the board is kind of just like wanted to put those moments in and, and like had fun with it. And I think like, yeah, one of them is like obviously at the beginning um, where uh, Katra just jumps into Dora's lap um, that was uh, one of my board artists, Angela, her idea. And then um, I think in the season as well, we were like, 
having fun with making Katra as like cat-like as possible because she's finally in a situation where she's happy and she's not um, just like under a lot of duress. And so we, um, I think we had fun just like giving her sort of like cat mannerisms and, 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 and yeah, it was, it was fun. So in Shot in the Dark, there, to me, this is the episode where like the flirtation blows wide open. There are just so many cute scenes and glances and sneezes and handholds. Jen, what was this, was this fun for you to, to kind of get to play with this dynamic really uh, out for the first time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It it, it was, especially in terms of shot in the dark, it was the, for me, at least the first time seeing all of these characters together in the same place when they were not actively fighting each other or, or under an immediate, you know, running from one place to another sort of peril. So it it was such a treat for for me and I think for the board artists uh, to actually really get in and just be like, okay, how do these characters act around each other? Like, uh, like, and we wanted to make it clear that they like each other or at the very least they're on their way to really liking each other uh, in, in terms of friendship. And then also, of course, between Catra and Adora, it's just like they're kind of relearning being around each other uh, in, a, in, a, in a new way. Uh, so it was really fun. Um, and yeah, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Kiki, but we always wanted the ending to be what it was, but I don't think we got final confirmation that we basically were, we had the full just go ahead with it until maybe around these episodes handed out, right? Or maybe even after. Really? I think I, I think you're so, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was partway through production of this final season. And it was, you know, it wasn't because people were telling us no. I think it was just because we just, you know, the script wasn't, the final script wasn't out yet or done. They were working on it. And uh, uh, I think it was during these episodes when Noelle finally was like, the, the episode scripts were done and they were sent out. And Noelle had to really awesomely, bravely just go out there and be like, guys, this is it. This is the plan. Here's, and she had to pitch it to a bunch of different people. And so when she got the yes, it was like coming back into it. And it was like, all right, cool, crack knuckles. Let's make sure and go through all of these episodes and make sure that we're really paying service to the story that we now know that we absolutely are going to be able to do and are doing. So you're saying there was a potential world where Glimmer Catra was, came to fruition. <laughs> Eric just wants that to be. I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, that's that. That's that's an, that's definitely a Noel question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely say that. Like so much of the crew loved the dynamic between Glimmer and Catra. I mean, it's such a good storyline. Them being trapped on that ship together, and their par- like their storylines were so parallel in the the previous season, where it's just like you guys have a lot more in common than you probably ever would have thought. Yeah, it Laura Sweetney be... backed me up on that last week, so I feel vindicated. <laughs> keep pushing for it. It would be nice to get Noelle back on the show or even just exchange some tweets because I would bet that if it wasn't going to be a Catradora centric finale, then it wasn't going to be like anything. You know, <laughs> if if the intention for that didn't get to be seen through, I doubt they'd pivot into just like a different lesbian ship I feel like it would Mm. maybe have not happened at all and I don't know I mean that's just me guessing based on what what would get approved and what the what what could be agreed upon um and I'm just glad we got what we got I guess yeah Yeah. I can't really imagine it any other way 
Yeah, and I think Noel, that was really by design too. Like, no, I think Noel really m wanted to make sure that like their relationship was core to like you know like there there's there's their romance, but it's it's really central to the plot, and it kind of it yeah doesn't really work without it. They 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 really do need to be together for the show to work. I just think that's so cool that even up until like seven episodes before the end, um, kind of the it was developing organically, you know, like I'm sure like you said, you had ideas that you wanted it to go here, but you were kind of letting the characters and the story uh, also take the route that like it, it felt like it should. That's really cool. Yeah. And I think again, it's such a credit to the writing and, and to Noel and the writers um, and, and also just the, the whole process, the storyboard artist too, like even with characters like Ron Hordak, like it, it was so fun feeling like we were getting to know him as we were drawing him and how often the characters would surprise us. Yeah. Oh, he, his come to Jesus moment in this episode is <laughs> just tremendous. Yeah. Uh, I think, <laughs> oh yeah. I, I feel like Ron Hordak was one of those characters where the writers, um, we're like, we're gonna make this character. He's clone. He's a clone, but we're gonna, we're gonna call him Ron Hordak. And we were just like, haha, that's so funny, you guys, <laughs> <laughs> you guys and your jokes. And then, and then he's an actual character in the script. And not only that, but like everyone immediately connected to him and just like completely immediately latched on to like his character and like who he was and like wanted to give him like all of the, these like cute moments that like really make him like so lovable. <laughs> I he's he's definitely my standout favorite of this season. I also appreciate and this is not canon. I'm not going to make anyone say that it's canon, but sort of in the 11th hour of the show it opened up this like polyamory possibility with Entrapta and Hordak that I've seen come up in the fandom. Wait, do you mean like Entrapta and Double Hordaks? Yes. Have you not seen that <laughs> fan art? Corner, no. Eric, let me take you on a journey after we stop recording. <laughs> but like that gift kind of being given so late in the show to um you know, it, I'm laughing, but it's it's not just a joke. It's a form of representation that is important, and I'm glad people could have that story if they want it. Speaking of kind of characters that take on a life of their own, so we meet the Melog in this episode, which I have to admit, even though Lauren and I discussed the episode with the Melog from the Filmation show, I thought at first that uh, Katra said this character's name was Mima, and I was like... <laughs> That's weird. Okay. And then when I figured out it was Maylog, I was like, oh, like the mud demon. That's cool. What a cool reference. My understanding, uh, based on what I've seen on Twitter, I think from Noelle, is that this could have, you know, in theory, been Claudine. But because Claudine looks so much like the lion from Steven Universe that they just stepped back from that and didn't they didn't want to get accused of any copyright or co or just copying issues but as a result of that because Eric and I did do that episode from the 80s I was like when's she going to turn into a woman <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't a thing yeah, it was so interesting to hear that, too, because I actually hadn't been a part of that process of deciding, like, is it Claudine or is it Milog? So to find out who Milog was and to hear the backstory, is like, oh, this was, yeah, like a mud, uh, it's a character from the original, and it's just like a shapeshifter. And it's, uh, yeah, it was really interesting to pick it up and then just kind of 
go into the script and be like, okay, and then what is the function of this character inside of this episode, which as you find out over the course of the rest of the season is to basically be Catra's emotional support animal. <laughs> right. I, I love Milog. I, I just think there's so many adorable things in this episode and I would totally buy, I'd pay $25 for a plush Milog, maybe 30. So same. I think the merchandising ship has sailed, but I just want to vision board that into the universe. Yeah. You squeeze it and it sneezes. It would be very, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and I hope it would have a blue tongue. I would want it to have a little blue mlem tongue. That would make me squeeze it with mlems. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I want this. (laughs) There's a lot of really cool uh, visuals. Like, this is a very magical episode uh, in as much as, like, I mean, literally the the best friend squad is discovering that much like uh, Superman, Horde uh, Horde Prime has a weakness to magic. So, uh, I, I don't. There's just so many cool visuals. Like there's some horror movie vibe stuff here. The Melog does a lot of really amazing, like wispy, wispy things. Were there, were there challenges to kind of manipulating it to make it look as fluid as it does? Because I think this is a beautiful episode. Uh, yeah, thank you. And and it's it's a it is it was a challenge, but it's a huge credit to the design team and to the overseas animators um, who executed the effects on Melog. Um, and also to our storyboard artists, obviously, like Jasmine, I think, handled a lot of the Milog stuff, uh, Jasmine Goggins. Um, and, yeah, it, it was it was always important from the outset that this episode felt different from the others because this is kind of like the Haunted House episode um, where they're literally going to this planet that is pretty much deserted, has been wiped out, um, and trying to figure out what happened and who, like, wait, maybe something that they can use against Ford Prime. So uh, a lot of it was kind of similar to Peekaboo. We're like, okay, this needs to be a darker episode, not because we're necessarily obscuring things, but just because we want the tone to be dark. We want this to be mysterious. We want this to be spooky. Uh, and I think design really stepped up, and, and so did the uh, the animation studio, uh, the animators over at Any4U. Uh, and we tried to stage it in a way where we're like, okay, how do we make this as creepy as we possibly can within our... Uh, our constraints of it largely being a hallway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when that hallway extends unnaturally, boy, that is creepy as heck. Yay! Yeah. Okay, cool. So, <laughs> yeah. so I'm to the end of all my questions about, like, the process on the episodes, but knowing that this is, like, the last season of this stuff getting made, I feel like we should ask just the fun stuff about, like, what characters and moments did we like best? Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And I maybe I can start with uh, tying into your directing. Do you, is there like an episode that sticks out for either of you as like a particular challenge where you're like, yeah, I don't know, you still have nightmares about completing it or something? I, I mean, I would say that like, you know, TV animation, you're on a pretty tight schedule. So there's, it's always kind of that like race to the finish line where you're just like, running on like pretty much adrenaline at the very end of every episode um but I think if I had to pick like an episode that was like a challenge but also that I felt like was really uh rewarding to work on from from this season I guess I mean aside from the finale it would probably be Corridors um Mm. Corridors is like uh I kind of, like, always wanted to work on an episode like that. Um, I'm, like, a huge sci-fi nerd, so it was fun to work on an episode in space. It was fun um, to to do an episode um, 
that like felt kind of it's kind of a quiet episode a lot of my episodes have sort of these like big action set pieces at the end um like for for example in peekaboo it's like the the fight in the grotto and then the fight in the um in the camp but um for corridors we you know there was a little bit but but it was the focus was mainly on um sort of catra and like her um her sort of like coming to her own realization of like what she what she needed to do and um and uh you know coming to to terms with the fact that like she like really needed to make the right decision here in this moment to kind of like atone for the stuff that she's done in the past and um have that really like grand gesture of of saving glimmer um and i think that that was like that was an episode where I worked pretty closely with Noelle and with the writers to make, to kind of like really bring that arc out for Katra. Um, and uh, that was also an episode where like we added a couple of scenes that weren't in, that wasn't in the script, um, you know, including the scene like in the hallway um, where Katra kind of sees the version of her and Adora as, as kids. Um, and so that one, I feel a lot of creative, creative ownership over um, because I had like a, a, a bigger hand in um, helping shape that episode into like what it was um, than, than maybe some of the others. That I, I can't decide, but that might be my favorite episode of, of the season it's that or good. save the cat. That's so awesome. Save the cat was Jen. <laughs> oh, how about that? Hey. How about you, Jen? Do you, do you have any episodes that stand out as like a, a fulfilling challenge? I mean, all of them, but um, <laughs> actually to tie it back to what Kiki is saying, um, I think there, there's so many episodes that were so fulfilling, like the uh, the second to last episode uh, of the season or the show um, was, I think, one in particular uh, that was really fun, I think, and also challenging to work on because that was another one where we were kind of, it's it's a, it's a what is basically about a, as a movie, right, Kiki, that <laughs> we're making? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We often uh, joked about that. <laughs> yeah. The, like the sort of two hour, two and a half hour, or, or not two hour, sorry, one hour uh, movie towards the end. Um, and I remember we were having to, you know, pay off all of these character arcs um, with the heart, with all of the different characters being in different places. And I remember we were kind of restructuring the episodes after we saw them all together. And I think at one point, Noelle found me in the writer's room late in the afternoon with flashcards denoting all of the scenes like looking like the that meme from um always sunny just being like it's this this is where the scene goes <laughs> um, and i think i remember uh, a late edition that was also kind of a collaboration with noel was um the scene between uh and sorry this is skipping ahead to where you guys are at covering in the podcast but the the scene between adora and mara uh and that was a, a late edition that we did i believe it animatic that um noelle was rewriting it as i was drawing it um the line you're worth more than what you can give to other people was like something that we're like late at night just like tears in our eyes being like yeah that's right <laughs> like, <Aww. laughs> um trying to pull the story all together and make it as uh emotionally effective as possible um but yeah that that was a big one and then of course also promise in the first season, 
um, which ties to what Kiki did in Corridors, just like all of the flashbacks in Promise uh, to the kid one. That was another one working closely with Noelle, like late at night. Uh, and it was bizarre because it was actually technically, we did that one out of production order. So we did that episode before we did Princess Prom, um, just because of production reasons. Uh, so we I was like, that was my third episode, and we were already really digging in deep to Katra, basically, going off the deep end, and we're like, okay, what is going on in her head? And it was, I don't know, it was one of the most rewarding experiences I had, try to, like, dig into the characters and make sure that everything hit emotionally. That's so cool. And yeah, I feel like Promise becomes kind of the emotional bedrock for the whole series. Mm. Yeah, it's like that, all those callbacks. Even yeah. He, and it's so effective. Yeah, exactly. it definitely was like... Back. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely informed um, what I did in Corridors. It was like, um, I really wanted to kind of like call back to that. And I, to, that's so interesting to me that you added those scenes like post-script because to me those are... That's what kind of lets you know, like, hey, this episode is important. Pay attention to it. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, it's this next chapter in the Adora Catra saga. Yeah, I think um, it was, uh, you know, we, I, we, I'd had a discussion with Noel where we were like, oh, you know, we think it, it feels like Catra needs something more here. Like, she needs, like, a moment where, um, you know, she really, like, is kind of, like, forced to come to grips with it and, and then, like, turns before she goes to save Glimmer. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, it was something where I was, like, I rem I, I remembered Promise and I was, like, I really want to do something kind of like that where she's, like, connecting with, like, her, um, her, her younger self or, like, seeing that and, and, and that's kind of, like, what gets her to, to, to change. It's like the perfect way to make the internal external, which I think was something that as, as directors on the visual side is something that we, we did a lot because it's just like, it was all in the script, all of the character motivations and, and why they were making the decisions they were making. And then um, the really fun challenges that Kiki and I would have would be like, okay, how do we have this visually how do we show this without just having the character stand there and saying it? Because the, the, the writing is too sophisticated for a character to just say like, this is what I'm feeling in this moment. So we, we felt like we had to step up and be like, okay, how do we visually represent this really good writing, this really good character work that's happening? We have been joking both before the recording started and during it about like season six, hey, hey. Uh, and like, that's probably not a thing, but if you were to create like your dream She-Ra content and it could be a new season, it could be a spin-off series, like, you know, my very awesome Hordak clones idea. Uh, <laughs> what, what, kind, what kind of story would you still want to tell or what would you want to make? Mm. I feel like we put so much of ourselves and, uh, she like the show is kind of like very personal in a lot of ways because it felt like sometimes what we were going through on the outside and in, in you know in in our in our lives and working on the production like ref reflects very closely to like some of the themes in the show and I think especially like I think Noel's talked about this before but like you know stepping into a position of leadership for the first time. Um, kind of being that person um, where like now people look to you for guidance and you feel a responsibility towards people and um, and and kind of what that means and the toll that it takes on you. 
Um, and I feel like we were able to kind of explore all of that through working on the show. Um, and so I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I feel like there, there would be like another, another story there that, that like, I guess I, I would feel like I, I wanted to tell just because I feel like I put, uh, I put kind of everything I wanted to say, um, you know, into that, everything that I wanted to say into the, into these, into these episodes. Um, that being said, I think it would be like, I think it would be fun to, to, to have a double trouble spinoff. I really love them. <laughs> it's almost like that was just all a disclaimer. Like, <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, I think it's a very compelling point that, you know, you have told a, a complete story with an emotional and a great ending and you don't need to go on. But on the other hand, what if there was another Horde Prime who was like <laughs> taller and buffer and even stronger and he had way cooler guns and swords and also like a bigger spaceship? Like, oh my God. have you ever thought about that? <laughs> Basically like the Death Star just being made over and over and over. There are big franchises that take exactly that strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I do I agree with Kiki in the sense that it's it's very hard for me to imagine further stories with our main cast just because I felt like we were with them on that journey, and yeah. part of it is just like and now we rest. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also the world that was made was so rich and we barely got to explore a lot of it. So I I think that if I were in the fandom, I would be going absolutely wild over being like okay. Uh, we're going to do spin off with Double Trouble. All right, we're going to talk about Bo's dads going on archaeology adventures. It's going to be Indiana Jones, but with Bo's dads. And they're going to go into space. And like, <laughs> like, there's just so much fun stuff. And I'm like, I, I feel like if I were a fan, if I were just, uh, if I had the, the energy and the skill to write fan fiction, I would be going just nuts. <laughs> yeah, uh, totally agree. And, uh, you know, also, I know that this ship sailed pretty early on, if not from the very beginning, like definitely once um, Revelations was announced on Netflix. But man, there's a part of me that thinks it would have been a really neat inversion to have the show end with Adora going and finding like her brother and awake, like waking him up. And as opposed to like the classic, you know, She-Ra where he has to save her from the horde. Like maybe she makes Prince Adam woke. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's like really stupid, but I feel like there's something very timely about that too. But we'll never know because now it, it's in Kevin Smith's hands. It's his turn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He gets to play in a sandbox now. <laughs> yeah. Pass the baton. <laughs> <laughs> for now. I'm, I'm still holding out hope for a magical crossover where for some reason his anime style merges with your Noel style and no one ever says why or thinks that that's weird. <laughs> I'd be so curious to see Powerhouse too. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, that I I thought that was a great uh, question, Lauren. Do you have any others? I feel like we're probably nearing the end of our time here. Uh, only the question we must ask, which is oh, yeah. that if our listeners would like to see more of your work or otherwise find you online, where would you like them to look or go? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Kiki in space. Um, and, uh, 
Yeah, I also have Instagram. I think the same handle. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then I am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Jen underscore Ben Ben, B E N B E N. And uh, after Shira, uh, Kiki, and I actually went on together to direct on another show called Centaur World at Netflix Animation. But unfortunately, because animation is very difficult and takes a long time, that probably won't be coming out until next year. Oh, yeah. But it's going to be so, so good. And it, it also has a lot of rainbows in it. I think I can say that because the the poster has has rainbows on it. Yeah. <laughs> this is an, another stupid question, but is it literally a world of centaurs? Yes. Yes. I mean, yeah. I think they, they, they put the log line out and it's like, what if this war horse got transported to this magical world with centaurs uh, who sing and dance? And that's that's the start of the story. <laughs> uh, I had not yeah. heard of this before. And I'm so thrilled to have Googled the poster while talking to you because <laughs> this is wild and I'm delighted. And I encourage everyone to do the same right now. Yeah, it's going to be so like, much fun. Because when you think, it answers a lot of questions about like that people often jokingly ask about centaurs like what if the body parts were kind of flipped or what if we use this animal thank goodness we have this i can't wait oh yeah it's it's gonna be so much fun <laughs> <laughs> well guys thank you so much for being on the show today we we really appreciate it uh thank you for the wonderful entertainment and for making uh some of these covid days feel you know, kind of normal for a minute. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. Thank you for, for watching the show and, and loving it enough and, and, and having this amazing podcast where you, you talk about it. it. It is the most gratifying thing as someone who is a creative person to, to hear you guys talk about this. Aww. Yeah, absolutely. I just promise me you'll, you'll think about what if there's another horde prime with a bigger ship. <laughs> oh, please. I just, I need it. The bigger <laughs> muscles are the important part. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You remember when we talked about whether Hordak was hot? <laughs> we haven't yet asked, is Horde Prime hot? So, oh, coming next coming week. Coming next week, Jose. yeah. Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressive of power. <laughs>